Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I am Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. We have made it to the start of the college football season, the real start, the full start. We had a little warm-up last week with Week Zero. Now we're set for a marathon Labor Day weekend of games starting on Thursday, ending on Monday night. It's glorious, and there's a lot to get to. We have two guests today. First up, we'll talk to the great Kirk Herbstreet from ESPN. Kirk has a new book out called Out of Pocket that he wrote with ESPN colleague Gene Wojciechowski. We'll talk about how Kirk's relationship with his father influenced his relationship with his game day co-star, Lee Corso. Plus, we'll get his thoughts on the upcoming season and week one's biggest game. Then we'll talk to recurring guest and my good friend Paul Meyerberg, the national college football writer with USA Today. Quite simply, we'll dive into week one. Preview a bunch of games. What Paul and I did is we ranked our most intriguing games of the weekend from one to five. We'll roll through each other's lists and talk about some other things having to do with week one. We're both very excited to have the season here looking like a real college football season. So let's talk some ball. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on appodcast.com. You can find all of AP's podcasts there, including my colleague Rob Motti's NFL podcast. You can find uh, this podcast right here on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is the great Kirk Herbstreet from ESPN, the star of College Game Day. You hear him on Saturday Night Football. And now he is also an an author. Thanks for joining me today, Kirk. How are you? Yeah, great to be with you, Ralph. How you doing? Doing very well. Doing very well. Looking forward to week one and some uh, and a big time weekend of football. Uh, but I do want to start with your book, Out of Pocket: Football, Fatherhood, College Game Day Saturdays. Uh, you wrote it with Gene Wojciechowski, your colleague from ESPN Game Day. You know, I've heard you interviewed about this book and talked about. Uh, your relationship with your father, which you really revealed a lot more of than I think ever before. You know, a few years ago, I did a story on you and your relationship with uh, Lee Corso, and you had mentioned some about something about your relationship with your father then and how it maybe has manifested itself in your relationship with Coach. But just l- let's get into that a little bit. I know that's the, that's the core of the book in many ways. What was your relationship like with your father, and how did it sort of shape you and your life going forward? Yeah, and and first, I mean, the the book and the the reason we decided to open up, um, I, I just think I didn't want to write just a football book, you know, or just about broadcasting. So there's there's plenty of football in the book. There's plenty of talk about broadcasting and and kind of how I got into that world and some of the stuff that I've been able to fortunately be a part of in in broadcasting. So there's tons of that, but you know, Gene and I, just because I, I had somewhat of a dysfunctional uh, background growing up, and you know, the story and how I got to where I am in life is kind of like, wow, how how in the world did this happen? Kind of thing. And so we just decided, 
as I got comfortable with him and I, and I knew him, but I know him much better now after opening up my heart to him. Um, I just decided to just be honest, which is not, I'm an introvert by nature. And so it's not necessarily an easy thing for me to do, but as we worked on it time and time again, and he would bring up stories my mom shared with him because my dad has passed and I'd be like, wow, man, I haven't thought about that in 40 years, you know? And, and so I did, it was emotional to kind of get into some of this stuff because my dad was my hero. He played at Ohio state. He was a captain. I grew up on Ohio state junkie, just a sports junkie. And I just always wanted my dad's approval and everything I did was, you know, like, like a lot of kids, you know, you want your dad to kind of be there. And he was until I was eight and my parents divorced. And, and then that, that kind of got turned upside down and he, he moved out of the house and got remarried and, and was kind of in and out of my life throughout um, most of it. And I didn't have resentment or anger. You know, sometimes people go through divorce or they lose, you know, their dad being around and they have anger. And I didn't, I had more of an emptiness, you know, just, I wanted, he was a good guy. I wanted more of him uh, in my life. And throughout my entire life, that was kind of the story. He was around and when he was around, it was great, but he wasn't always around. And so we talk a lot about that. And, and I think a lot of sons and fathers struggle with relationships. And, and I, a lot of my friends, they, they don't have a great relationship with their dad. And so all that kind of motivated me to try to be, and I'm not the best dad in the world at all. And I don't try to pretend to be in this book, but I do talk about how I learned from some of my dad's shortcomings and trying to be the best dad I can be. I've made plenty of mistakes along the way. I still make them today, but I just open up about them and, and address them and talk about some of my shortcomings and how I'm trying to be better. So it's not a how-to book at all. It's more of just opening up and hoping that the book resonates and that some people have their own trials and tribulations that they've been through. And <clears throat> it's, it may be nice that they can relate to somebody else that's been through it. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the story behind the book. Lee Corso, I think, has his own chapter uh, in this book, and he, and he deserves it. He's just been so influential on me and my career, but more importantly, on me as a person. Um, I've learned so much just being around him. I'm a guy that really appreciates the, the generation before me. And so when I'm around them, I just, I'm a big listener. I just, I like to watch and observe and analyze in my own mind. And so a lot of times Lee did stuff he didn't even know he was having an impact on me, but I was studying him and watching him and learning. And I, and I just, I'm a big believer in that. And, and with anybody that I meet that's, that's older than me because their wisdom and the things they've been through in their life, anyone that I respect anyway. And so for Lee, you know, I just, I value him as a person far more than the entertainer that we all love, you know, and, and come to, to cherish over these decades. So what you see with me on game day is just a guy that appreciates Lee Corso, the guy, the guy that I've opened up with, the guy that I've talked with, and I don't have a lot of people to do that with. And so he's one of the handful of people I do. And I talk real with about my life and he listens, which is such a rare quality. I feel like in today's world, and the fact he listens, he takes the time to listen, and then he'll give me Yoda-like advice <laughs> back. It's like two sentences, and you're like, wow, you know, why didn't I see that? <laughs> After, you know, I spill my guts for 20 minutes to him, and he says two sentences, and, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that. You know, that's kind of how, how my relationship with him has been. So uh, I cherish him. I cherish that relationship, and, 
know, he means so much to us, obviously on the show, but like I said, just did so much to me one-on-one. You know, it's funny. Lee and uh, my dad are about the same age. I get what well, coach Corso is 82, 86. 86. Yeah, he just turned 86. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So he's actually a couple of years older than my dad. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I find myself with my father. I feel like the thing that I most uh, treasure about my dad is just what you said right there. And maybe it's that generation. It's, Hey, I, I, I got this going on. I got that going on. Boy, I'm confused about this. And it's, and it's a sentence. It's a, it's, it's yeah. summing up. Yeah. Sort of like very yeah. simple advice that makes you go, oh, oh, like I'm just like, oh, that's it. Like that's, that's what, that's yeah. what's important. It's amazing. How, and again, maybe it's the generation. It's a, it's a, it's a generation that sort of grew up, uh, you know, with the, with the, uh, great work ethic, but also that sort of, uh, value of, hey, this is what, um, this is sort of what a husband and a father is supposed to do. And it's yeah. very simple. Totally. Just go do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I equated, I kind of use Yoda and like, you know, Yoda's laying in the bed and Luke Skywalker's approaching him and he's just like asking him like, what's the key to life kind of thing. And <laughs> Yoda helps him. It's that, or it's, it's, it's Don Corleone petting a cat <laughs> sitting in a dark room, you know, and somebody comes to tell him all their problems and he's just sitting there nodding his head. And then eventually, you know, he, he kind of gives an answer as to, to what he thinks he needs to do. I mean, that, that's kind of how Lee is. So the show was weird last year for all kinds of reasons. And last year's season was weird for all kinds of reasons. The pandemic just threw everything off. But I thought you guys did an amazing job of keeping Coach involved in the show. I thought it was very entertaining, frankly, to see him at home and to have the mascots there. But I wonder for you, not being around him, physically around him, was, was that tough on you at all? Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, twenty-five years he's he's been next to me. It's, it's all I've really ever known, and and you know, there's so many impromptu moments. You know, you do a show for three hours, and there's no script, there's no teleprompter. You know, you you have a you have a rundown in front of you, but a lot of times I have no idea what Des is going to say or Reese or or Coach. I have no idea. You just kind of you kind of react, and there's so many golden moments of something he may say that you're just like, here, here we go. You know, he's like, and it's just so easy to naturally react because you don't, it's not acting. You don't, you don't know what he's saying. Like I said, there's no, there's no script or teleprompter. And so not having that and people don't understand what, anytime you watched uh, TV last year and people were on these zooms doing local or, or national, you know, studio shows, there's a second half delay. I don't know if you experienced mm-hmm, any of those mm-hmm. shows yourself, but you know, you, you, you're, you're, uh, 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 you know, there's so many moments like that where you're starting to, uh, uh, then you hear them, then you hear somebody. And when you're 85 years old and you're trying to navigate, you know, is it my turn to go do I, do I you know? And, and so all things considered, I was really, really happy with how things went um, and the, the job that the, the crew did down at, in Orlando with him, the different sets, I mean, it was fun. We made fun out of a really bad situation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but there is nothing week zero in Atlanta. There was nothing like having us all together and, and having him on that set and us just doing our, our normal show. So I'm knocking on wood as we speak. I, I I'm just hopeful that we get through this year. We get back to the pageantry 
of this sport, what we love about the tailgating when you pull up to the stadium, the marching bands, the student sections, the cheerleaders, the alumni, the sense of community that is all over every one of these stadiums. Uh, I just hope that we're able to get back to that and stay in that lane uh, all the way through January. I've I've always wondered, or I think a lot of people wonder, who who love college game day and are immersed in the sport, cover the sport like I do. What you do on Saturdays is a lot of work. <laughs> Doing game day, especially you know, a lot of times, not you know, a little less often last year because I know you were trying to be not move around quite as much, but that turn around from game day to even if you're in the same spot to do game day and then call a game a few hours later even if there's no travel involved that's a lot of work and then if you happen to be jumping on a plane and and going across the country or even halfway across the country that's even a lot of work so uh, let me ask you this kirk how much longer do do you want to do that you know, I, I don't know. I, I've never want anybody to feel bad for what I'm doing on a Saturday sure, because I, sure. I love it so much, you know. But at the same time, I do, t- you know, be- between us, I do take a sense of pride and being the only one that I know of that does a three-hour studio show and then does a game the same day, you know, in the in the industry. I don't know. Maybe, maybe someone else does it. I can't think of. But I think I'm the only one that's been doing that for quite some time. And so I love the challenge of it. I love the idea that it's not normal and I love the idea of giving me an opportunity to stay in the studio workplace where I love game day. I love talking about USC and UCLA and Oregon and Washington and Arizona state and everything going on out here. Or I love what's going on in, in the ACC with Clemson and here comes North Carolina and it's Florida state and Miami got to get better. I love talking about here's the big 12 and Gary Patterson's trying to push and maybe they mm-hmm. can challenge Oklahoma and, the Big Ten and the SE, like I love covering the, the sport and the issues within the sport. And that studio show and doing game day allows me to be involved in that. And I love, so there's nothing like putting a headset on and stepping into a booth and standing next to Chris Fowler, who I love and appreciate so much, and putting on a headset, high, put, kind of putting a, uh, a, a fist pump, like hitting his fist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the ball goes in the air. And here we go, and we're doing a heavyweight game, and we do Rose Bowls and national championships. So I can't imagine stepping away from either one of those. Like, unless, you know, the NFL's in my future, you know, down the road or something like that. But for now, man, I just I love the college game, and I love the fact that I'm not having to choose between studio and, uh, and the game. So you know, you know, Kirk, Kirk I'm, a, I'm a journalist here, so I'm going to try to make a little news if I, if I can here. And, and, and here's some, and, and I, I understand you probably get again. It's, I think your last answer will is is probably indicative or, or, or an indication of what your what next answer will be. Can you imagine doing the show without? coach because i think there's a and there's an assumption i don't know you well enough to make this assumption so i'm i'm making this assumption from far away in that in that well, boy i wonder if when you're doing this double header when coach says he's had enough if maybe that's when kirk will say he's had enough and again like you may end up in the end of doing yeah, nfl I, games I yeah but but i yeah. think i think for a lot of us we see that relationship and think oh maybe that's what keeps kirk doing the double header fair um, I, I, when he had his stroke about 12 years ago, you know, I, because he and I, and, and at the time it was Chris, 
I mean, that was every bit the fabric of the show is the, the chemistry mm-hmm. between the three of us at that time. And I, I remember thinking in my own head, like, is he going to be okay? And is he still going to be able to do the show? And what will we do if he, he can't do the show? You know, what, what will that be like? And so I, years ago, I, I thought about not leaving the show, but just what would the show be like without him? And thankfully, he's been able to, to get through, you know, these shows and, and do a great job and, and show a lot of courage over this last decade and amazing work at his age and dealing with that and the, the uh, after effects of a stroke. I don't know if people realize, you know, people that maybe don't know people who had a stroke, how, how that can impact their speech. And so just to appreciate what he's doing on a, on a Saturday is amazing. Not to mention he's 86. <laughs> so um, we all tip our cap in gratitude and appreciation for him. It, when, when he decides it's time or when, when he decides to step away, um, I, I just, I haven't really gone there emotionally cause I don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. Like really think about it. Um, I can't imagine feeling like I need to step away as well when he does. Like I, I would feel, um, a certain, you know, it's, it's my, it's my duty to, to keep doing that show, you know, mm-hmm. and, and gotcha. to keep doing the best show that I can do. I, I don't, I, uh, I just, I, I, and I would want to be a part of the, basically the new game day, you know, and, and what, what it would, where it would go. I feel like, again, I owe that to the show to, to be a part of that and, and see where we go and who, who comes on the show, you know, what, what, what direction does the show go? And I would want to, I would want to be in the middle of that and, and, uh, and be a part of that. Let's, uh, let's talk about this season. Uh, it's again, we're, I think we're all super excited to have, you know, some normalcy back. You will be, uh, you guys will all be in Charlotte this weekend and you'll be calling, uh, Clemson and Georgia, um, without yeah. getting, I'll get you a little bit on that game, but I, I do wonder your sense of, Hey, you know, I saw, we all saw your picks for the national championship, the college football playoff, and it's hard to not go with chalk these days, right? <laughs> it is just, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, you, I think I tried to mix it up a little bit, and even me, I found myself thinking like, well, I'm going to do this just to do it, but it, it but I don't even know yeah. if my heart's really into it. Um, <laughs> so my, my big question to you would be, do you, is this just, hey, Dabo's great, Saban's great, you know, Ohio State's on a run here. Do you, what what could change this? Do you think it's just the people? Maybe if the coaches change eventually, eventually I think Nick is going to step aside, right? He's got an eight, what, six, seven more years on that contract. So, okay, there's hope. There's where you think he might leave there. Is there anything that you think could change this? Because I do understand as much as it's amazing to see what Alabama has done, it's amazing to see what Clemson has done. Uh, I mean, what Alabama has done is historic. I do understand people going, wow. Wow, this feels like it's almost preordained. Well, you've been covering the sport a long time, like I have, and, and this th- these last five to six years to me are unprecedented as far as the same teams elevating themselves to a completely different level consistently from everybody else. I mean, we've seen one, you know, we've seen the Florida States and the Nebraskas, oh, you know, and you can Miami, point out any generation yeah, right. or any team, Miami, yeah. Oklahoma with Bosworth and Jamel Holloway, I mean, Barry Switzer. They've been great coaches and great teams. But I'm talking about 
like you said, open a preseason magazine in 2022, all right? Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, it's like the same teams. Why is that? My theory is there's never been more of an emphasis on the youth of today who play football on making it to the NFL. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. When I played in the 90s, it was about, sure, you wanted to go to the NFL, but, man, you wanted to go play college football. Like, you were so excited to go play college football. And I'm not saying kids today aren't excited to play college football. I'm saying the, what, the information that they consume on social media, their friends, their family, it's all about you getting paid and going to the NFL. And so if that's the focus, Who's going to help you go chase that dream down? And when Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson, and Georgia come into your house and they say, oh, it's funny, you play defensive back. Well, in the last five years, here are the guys that we've had drafted, mm-hmm. and, and here's how much money collectively they've made. Oh, you're a receiver. Okay, well, here's our wide receivers that we've had drafted over the last five to ten years. Oh, you're a, you're a lineman. Okay, here. And so – when the focus is not on the history or tradition or the business school or whatever it is, it's focused on strictly NFL. Those teams have such an advantage because these guys don't know who Archie Griffin is or Eddie George. They know who Devonte Smith is. Mm-hmm. They know they know, their history is two years ago. And so these 18 year olds are easily swayed into going and being a part of these behemoths. And their focus is these guys are going to get me to the NFL. And I don't like that personally. I don't like that being the focus. I, I, I'd like to think tradition and man, this is the same uniform that so-and-so wore, or, you know, my dad always loved this team and I want to go play for this team. Or I remember watching this team when I was a kid or whatever it is, but it's all about NFL and Alabama, Ohio state and Clemson and Georgia, maybe throw in Oklahoma right now have a decisive advantage. And so I don't know how that changes. I, I just don't. As long as these head coaches are still there, I just don't know why it would ever change. And I'd love to see Iowa State get up there. I'd love Penn State or Oregon or Texas or Florida State to come back or whoever, Auburn, anybody. I'm all for it. Um, but right now there's a huge discrepancy in roster talent between those top five teams and everybody else. And I think it has everything to do with what's on the 18-year-old mind. The five-star can go to any school in the country. Why is he going to these same four or five schools? And it has everything to do with those, those schools are going to help me get to the NFL in three years. And, uh, again, I'm not a fan of that. I just, I'm an observer, and that's what I see. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and you explained it great. So you're going to see one, two of those teams on Saturday uh, in Charlotte when Clemson plays Georgia. Just give me a little taste of what you are most excited to see. Obviously, new quarterback or semi-new quarterback for for Clemson. Some new stars on that on, on the offensive side of the ball. Georgia hasn't really fully displayed what its offense could be because it, it, it you know, now it finally has a full off season to 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 install it uh, with a with the same quarterback it, it intended to play all all off season. What are you most interested to see between Clemson and Georgia? Well, with Clemson with with DJ Uwe Ungalale, I just want to see if he can take the reins, you know, it's not just Trevor Lawrence. It's, it's Deshaun Watson and it's, it's, it's Taj Boyd. It's, it's the intangibles of being selfless leader. 
And is he that kind of guy? I don't know. I've never seen him really be the guy. And we saw him against Boston College and Notre Dame. But those teams rallied around Taj Boyd and Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. And there's more to being a quarterback than just being a physically talented guy. It's, as Nick Saban likes to say, you got to win the team over. And you win the team over by being a guy that doesn't always have to be the guy. Mm-hmm. And those other three were incredible at doing that. So now I'm excited to, to see him and, and see him get his opportunity. We, we got a taste of it last year. He looks like the, the real deal. And I just can't wait to see his leadership and how he reacts to adversity and how he reacts to success. So that's what I'm really locked in on specifically. Um, in, in the, from XO standpoint, I think it's a game week one. You know, usually you get a game or two to kind of warm up and then you go play a behemoth. These guys are coming right out of the gate. NFL has preseason. Mm. High school football has preseason. College doesn't, as we know. And you got to step right into the deep end of the pool. So the, to me, which quarterback avoids the turnover? will win the game, the disastrous moment will win the game, and then the line of scrimmage I think will be huge. Which team did a better job of being physical and working hard and really beating each other up I think will have the the big advantage uh, in, in a week one matchup of teams of this magnitude. Kirk Herbstreet from uh, you can catch him on College Game Day. You catch him Saturday night calling Clemson, Georgia, and you can go buy his book Out of Pocket Football Fatherhood and College Game Day Saturdays. I've it's gotten great reviews. Good luck with it, Kirk. Good luck with the season. Uh, we're just so excited to be again, sort of back to normal. Hopefully, I'll actually get to see you in a press box sometime hey, yeah, this exactly. season. It'd be really fun to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Th- thanks so much for having me. You guys do a great job. You're, you're the leader of a great group and uh, look forward to coming on with you hopefully later in the year. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, Also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league Break down the biggest games and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Joining me next on the podcast is my good friend, the great Paul Meyerberg from USA Today, recurring guest, Paul are you psyched? I mean, this is the point when we should be psyched. We should be excited. It, it, it's been, it's been, you know, more than two years since we've had a real football season. Um, we've got the whole shebang this weekend of the, uh, the marathon from Thursday to Monday. I'm kind of psyched. Are you psyched? Yeah, I mean, definitely. But to me, my overriding emotion or sentiment right now is just curiosity mm-hmm. because I don't know. I mean, I know for me personally, 
in my career, I've never had less of a grasp on what's going to happen this season than I've been ever, like than, I, than at any point. Because I don't know. We obviously are all on the same page and formed a consensus about the top five, six teams in the country, the six teams we say can win the national championship. Super seniors coming back with um, first-year coaches, with teams that didn't have a complete offseason and now have a full one under second-year coaches, with so many transfers, with so much unknown about the 2021 recruiting class because there was no face-to-face interaction between coaches and players. Everything was done on tape. Um, there is such an unknown uncertainty about this season from my perspective that I'm just, I'm really curious. Um, I know that a lot of projections that I make will be wrong because I don't have a grasp on what this year is going to look like. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's a, a really interesting, unique feeling to have for me as we're, you know, Tuesday right now, two days out from the season really getting started. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the the thing that's been hard for me is how much do I take last year seriously, right? In other words, what I saw last year, it's been very easy to say that team had a bad year unexpectedly. So, uh, well, it was just COVID. It it was a COVID year. I'm going to throw it out. Um but does that also mean that the team that did well unexpectedly, I should throw that out too? Because uh, that's what we've tended to do. Like the bad stuff, we've sort of said, ah, COVID, shrug it off. But then don't you have to also say, well, COVID, maybe what I saw last year was an illusion from that team that did well, especially when it comes to the teams that played the short seasons, um, you know, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten especially, but even from the teams that played the longer seasons because you find yourself thinking like, well, how many games did that team lose because they were down? You know, Virginia Tech is one that comes to mind. Like, you know, they seem to be without most of their defensive backs for weeks last year. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I laugh about it. It's not that funny, but, but like, well, how much do I take that seriously? So I go into this season finding myself, for all the reasons you said, super seniors, transfers, uh, coaches that didn't have a real, you know, onboard, uh, a real chance to onboard their systems, but also just, I don't know what was real. I know Alabama was real. I, I do know that. <laughs> I know Alabama was real. But, but beyond that, I feel like almost everything last year happened, and I'm not sure what to make of it. Yeah, and I think the issue is, like I said, like, what about teams 26 through 75? Teams you know are not going to be a national factor. Which are always which hard teams, to get, which are always hard to get a handle on anyway. Right. I mean, even in that, like, just as much as we do, or at least I do for teams 7 through 25, when I'm really just basing it off the really, you know, standard recent history or returning experience and, and coaching staff. Like those are the three factors. Um, like those are not factors necessarily that you can rely on, as you said, because what do you make about 2020? So the issue is for me, there's a team coming out of left field that I don't know of. There is a team. Some team is coming out of left field. Just like there's a team. I don't know if this, if you say we'll come out of right field, like we think they're <laughs> going to be good and then they're going to suck. But there's just a lot of uncertainty about it. But the good news is that we're going to have a complete season. Um, not to say there might not be a cancellation here or there. I think that's extremely possible. But we're going to have a complete season. And I think we start on the 2nd and the 4th. I think by the end of September, uh, so maybe a little bit later than usual, because usually you have a better idea like by week 3, 
I think by the end of September and going into October, we'll, we'll know again. It's just going to take a little bit of time. And I hope that, uh, um, like, if you're a fan of a specific team, you realize that it's going to take some time to get a clear picture of what your guys are about because this is a new experience. Even this season, this offseason has been a new experience for everybody. Yeah, and I think another thing that makes this uh, season interesting because of that, all the uncertainty, you know, and maybe this is just me pl- living in the moment and and, and overthinking um, a situation that probably is not that much dissimilar to other years. I found myself, and, and, or actually I think where I'm being influenced by is the Big Ten playing a lot of big games early. I think that, that that's really what's influencing this. I feel like there are several teams who by the time several big high profile teams that by the time September ends or maybe the first week of October we'll actually have a pretty good grasp. I mean, how many seasons do we find ourselves going like into, you know, mid October and still finding ourselves looking at the top 25 and thinking like that team hasn't been tested, that team hasn't been tested or or maybe there's been one test and and beyond that, we still are still trying to, you know, figure out who's good here, who's good there. There's always that flow to the season but I feel like this season there's a good bunch of six to eight maybe ten teams that man by 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 early October that team is going to have had some real tests and had a pretty good we'll have a pretty good idea of where that team is um, in or out and or just you know what the arc of that season will be and that's cool I find that very cool because I feel like I feel like it has a ten there's there's a chance that September will be a little more meaningful this year because by the time we get to October there could be some wreckage. Yeah, and we do get started with bang on Saturday. I mean, five games between ranked teams. My colleague Eric Smith seems to think that that's a record since at least the early 2000s. I think he went only back to 03 or 02 and found four was the most at week one. So that's a, a pretty historic slate to get things going. I mean, you mentioned by mid-October. I think you're, I think you're definitely right. I think even for those teams, um, that we're talking about is having a smoother path. Like, you know, I always think about SC this year, which is very talented, and obviously everyone has written ink on, on Clay Helton, his job security, and the, and the line is, well, they've got a schedule they can take advantage of. Um, it's definitely true early, but even SC, by the time you get to mid-October, they'll play Utah and Notre Dame and Stanford. I mean, Notre Dame's a juggernaut, maybe not, you know, a murderer's row of opponents, but yeah, I, I do think that for all the uncertainty that we're going to have and probably the over-analysis of week one that we're going to have, you know, the Kenny Trill um, <laughs> mystery that we do every single year. Right. I do think you're right. By mid-October, it's just, we're going to get back into a rhythm. And I think what's weird is, like, um, for you and I, or, you know, for players and coaches, but for you and I, for your listeners, for fans, like, we have body clocks. You know what I mean? Like, we have body clocks that tell us because you sniff the grass outside in August and you're on a practice field that you can, your body's telling you, hey, football's coming soon. And your rhythm is, hey, Saturday, go to bed a little bit early Friday. I got my day Saturday, this, 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 and this. I think we all need to work back into that rhythm and the routine because <laughs> we haven't done it, like you said, in two years. Um, but we'll get to it. We just got to be patient. It was good. And so, of course, I listen. The weather is different in every part of the country. But I know for uh, for us living where we do in the Northeast, in New York, it was kind of cool that the weather was what it was 
on Saturday, week zero, watching that Oklahoma, that, that Illinois Nebraska game. Cause even though it was hot and sunny in Champaign, it kind of felt a little like fall here in New York. It was gray and it was just a little tiny bit chilly because it was in the low seventies. So it felt like, it felt like, like Big Ten football from my couch when I looked outside the window. It definitely had that feel of like, ah, yeah, this is, this is football weather. I feel fine sitting inside on this couch watching this Big Ten football game. That worked quite well. Uh, I, I, I definitely don't want to go down the Scott Frost, Nebraska, what's wrong with Nebraska rabbit hole. Um, but I will ask you this. A lot of times when you, you, you've been covering the game long enough, you've been around college sports long enough, you, you do sort of get that feel of like, oh boy, this, this is a little more meaningful than just like, this isn't me overreacting. This is like a little more meaningful in the grand scheme of things as like where we're heading. Uh, I got that feeling on Saturday watching Nebraska, Illinois. As far as like what, what's going on with Nebraska, I wonder if you got that feeling too. Yeah, it felt, um, felt very familiar. Obviously, anyone who's aware of the last, I guess, three, years for Frost, or even beyond that, is aware that when something um, is, has the potential to go wrong, it, it's going to go wrong. It's almost a joke, I think, at this point. We, I mean, we were watching that game, the fumble return at the end of the second quarter. It's just a joke. It's a sick, cosmic joke. I mean, it can't be real, except it is. Um, yeah, I, I don't... Well, you, we don't, especially, I feel like you and I don't want to make too much of single games, but... It is possible to say about a loss at Illinois, a first-year coaching staff, an experienced team, but nonetheless a team that's new to schemes and philosophies, um, and extrapolate that to say that this is not an experiment that is showing any signs of reversal. And you could like go back, and again, we don't want to go too deep into it, but if you want to just try to pinpoint an issue from the start, um, I'm not quite sure what that is, but something has been off from day one for Nebraska underneath Frost. And maybe it's an issue of, you know, one guy running an entire program without bringing in voices that can provide dissent or provide a, a, a secondary option or a second opinion, um, not being open to looking at things outside of his own prism of experience. Um, I think there are a lot of things wrong with how the program has been run throughout his tenure. And uh, the expectation from all of those guys there was that, that they would be competing for a West Division in year two. And we're in year four, and they're very likely the worst team in that division, at least based on what we saw on Saturday. All right. So we'll leave it there, and let's look ahead. Because, again, I'm psyched. I'm psyched for the Thursday through Monday marathon, and we're going to do it this way. Uh, I could go, We could just roll through the schedule and go through every single game, and that might be fun because there's a lot of really interesting ones. So I just asked Paul, Rank them one through five. Your most interest, the games you are most interested in, whether intriguing, whatever word you want to use. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the best game. It's here are the five games that have my attention. And quite frankly, it could have easily been, you know, if I, if I redid this list, you know, half an hour from now, I could probably have, you know, three or four different games. But I came up with my five. You have your five. And we're just going to run through them. I, I assume there will be some la- some overlap here, but let's. Uh, uh, you're the guest, so I'm going to start with you. What? Okay. N- give me number five. What? What is your fifth most interesting or intriguing game of the weekend? The fifth, the game you are fifth most <laughs> looking forward to watch. Can I do weeknight games? 
Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. No, 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 no. I want you to pick from the whole weekend. I want you to pick Thursday okay. through Thursday through Monday. You can pick anyone you want. Okay, so my five is a Thursday, and it's in Boise at Central Florida. Um, deep storylines, two crowd, group of five programs, two group of five teams, specifically looking at the New Year's Six, Gus Malzahn's first game down in Orlando, and Diablo's first game at Boise. Um, two of the most talented teams in the group of five, and, and a lot, a lot, a lot at stake, and obviously a lot at stake for these two conferences as well when you talk about comparing the champion of those leagues um, in the final playoff rankings in December. Yeah, so I have that as number four uh, on my list. So, so we'll end up like going over it. I'll I'll pass on on that one, and I won't necessarily go over it. But yeah, I'm with you. I think that again, the, it's it's two programs. You know, especially it's always interesting in Boise because they have done such a great job of keeping stability despite coaching changes. And you can find yourself, you know, it went for, obviously if you want to go way back from you know the Hawkins to Peterson to. Uh, to then Harson and I uh, listen, I understand Harson never reached the heights that Peterson did, but they were pretty damn good. Boys are still pretty damn good under Brian Harson. And you do wonder, like, can they keep, cause that's been what they've strived for. Keep that stability, keep the model in place while still being very good. I don't, I don't think losing to UCF would necessarily blow up the model, but I am interested to see how that how that transition works. And I'm really super interested, you know, again, just to see what Gus is going to do there uh, at UCF. And when I say that, not just like big picture how he's going to do, I mean, like, what does his offense look like with Dylan Gabriel? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And look, like, for me, I keep thinking about, um, like, Tulsa. Like, I think the guy's name was Paul Smith. It could be a Tulsa. Back when the quarterback numbers weren't off the charts, the dude threw for 4,000 yards. I want to say this was 08 or 09, and I might have the years off. I probably should have Googled it. But that offense to me, um, I know it's a long time removed. That's football. with Todd Graham as the head coach at Tulsa, by the way. That was a yeah. long time ago. I know. Uh, and, you know, I, to me, I look at that offense. I mean, not that I can remember the offense, but I look at the structure of that offense, and I think – Malzahn knows, like, it's not like the offenses we saw at Auburn, which were muddy a lot of the times, is necessarily his preferred style. I mean, I think that we'll see him do a lot of interesting things with Gabriel. And, yeah, that's, uh, like, I'm sure there's another one, but off the top of my head, it's, like, one of the most, if not the most interesting um, head coach quarterback pairing in the country. I mean, obviously, among first-year coaches, that's almost obvious. Yeah, and it got even a little more interesting when Joey Gatewood ended up there. Um, um, the the can, can, former Auburn quarterback transferred to Kentucky, didn't win the job at Kentucky, landed at UCF. Now, I don't even know if he's eligible. I think he is. I think he's eligible to play, um, but I'm not 100% sure. But but uh, anyway, I think it, anytime you bring in another quarterback, it makes you wonder, oh, what's going on with the quarterback that they have? Uh, number five on my list was is uh, North Carolina at Virginia Tech on Friday night. That's the big Friday night game. I'm interested on this in this uh, for uh, you know several reasons. A, it's a it's a it's going to be a pivotal year at in Blacksburg for Justin Fuente. They are one of those teams that jumps out to me as. By the time we hit the first week of October, we may have a, a like their season may be may have already already played out. They play North Carolina, West Virginia, and Notre Dame within their first five games. If they are sitting at 
you know, two and three on October, you know, sixth or seventh, I guess it, it would be, you know, that could be it for Justin Fuente. Uh, do they have, do they have something for North Carolina? And the other thing is too, North Carolina comes in at number 10 in the country and it's hard to be like, I, I find myself still being a little skeptical about that. Like, I know that they're terrific offensively, but I, I do wonder if there's still a little part of me that thinks I need to see North Carolina be really, really good, not just eight and four like they were last year. Yeah, and, and this is what we <laughs> mentioned at the beginning. First off, you did say Virginia Tech is a hard team to peg because of last season. I mean, conversely, is Carolina a tough team to peg because of last season? I know they were eight and four. I know they went seven and three in the ACC. They got to the orange. But what does that mean for 21? Like, are we ready or, or is it safe or fair just to, like, get on board? and just be fully embraced the idea that it's the top 10 team that can win the national championship or at least win the ACC. I mean, I can listen to the argument. I think the argument's great. You know, I think there's a lot of talent there, and clearly they're on an upward trajectory. But I think there is a reason. And one thing I've learned as I've grown older is that Vegas is a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's a reason why this game is like five points. So basically, UNC favored by a touchdown given the home field advantage for Tech. I think it's going to be closer than that. Um, in terms of it's not going to be like the 21-point UNC blowout that you might have seen last year. Um, I think it's going to be a closer game than that. I think it's going to be a very interesting game and obviously a very telling game for Tech because if they win this game, I think it has the potential to change the trajectory of of this season. And and if that's the case, it changes the trajectory of Puente's tenure there in the next two, three, four years. Right, and I think if if North Carolina is truly a team that we – should take seriously as a threat to Clemson, then it wins this game. I don't, I'm not saying it has to win by 28, but it wins this game, covers this spread, and looks, you come out looking like fairly impressed. Uh, that's not to say that they can muddle their way to a victory and still have a grit and they, and they can have, still have a great season. But I, I guess I, I'm looking for a little validation here from, from North Carolina, and I'm looking for, a sign of what is to come very quickly. If if all the black clouds that seemingly have gathered around Blacksburg over the last couple of years, if they will lift. So that's my number five game. My again, my number four is Boise UCF. So we already covered that one. What's your number four? Um, Penn State at Wisconsin, um, noon on Saturday to open the season and open Big Ten play. Like this is a game that we talk about body clocks. My body clock expects this to be played on November 11th. It's 39 <laughs> degrees outside. I just went down to the deli and I've had uh, brought back a steaming hot coffee. I'm eating some breakfast. It's already dark outside somehow. It's like 12:45 in the afternoon. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I expect in this game. So it'll be interesting to see it this soon. I think both of these teams are playoff contenders. Um, I, I know that is not breaking news. I know a lot of people agree with me, but. Um, Penn State is absolutely going to bounce back. Last year was not a telling. Uh, that's an aberration for them to go four and five. <clears throat> and Wisconsin, um, if they can develop their running game, or rather redevelop their running game, I think they're, they're ready to roll. I think Wisconsin and Iowa in the West, um, possibility of ending the season with one or two losses, playing Ohio State for a New Year's Six. Um, yeah, two really good teams and a, and a really good matchup. I, I'm really excited to see these two teams right off the jump. I know both of them 
after kind of uneven 2020 years are, are chomping at it, the opportunity to get back on the field. Yeah, so I actually have that one as number one. And the reason why is the panic factor, right? Both of these teams are coming off of poor 2020 seasons. But again, it's easy, it's easy to write them both off as a uh, COVID, right? Penn State really bad, 0 and 5, salvages it to go 4 and 5. Wisconsin derailed by COVID, uh, literally derailed by COVID for two weeks in the middle of the season. And they just never looked right. And they won a bowl game to at least sort of salvage, save face, right? You know, have a big bowl game win against Wake Forest. But I think for both, I, I love the games where the loser, the losing team's fan base will go ballistic, right? Especially this early in the season. I think if, if you're Penn State and you lose this game, I think a lot of Penn State fans will be like, oh no, maybe last year was real, right? And I think that you get a little of that, maybe a little less, because I think Wisconsin fans tend to be a little more grounded. Um, and have a little more faith, I think, in just the the system. They have a little more faith in in well, we're Wisconsin. We'll figure it out, right? But I could see the losing team's fan base sort of be feeling very ominous, feeling like, oh boy, maybe last year was real, and maybe 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 we're not good anymore, right? Maybe maybe we're having program issues, like, uh, and it will be an overreaction. A lot of it. But that's why I think this game is so intriguing to me because I think both teams coming off of last year want to put that behind them, make it sort of a definitive statement that that was an anomaly. And to if you win, you put that away. And and last season is gone, and you can say, up oh, that was just that was just COVID. No no reason to worry about it. But if you lose, then all of a sudden last last year isn't as far in the rearview mirror. It's a little it's it's hanging right over your shoulder. Yeah, and I think for, hey, you nailed it. Penn State fans would probably be more despondent with a loss than Wisconsin fans, but it's, it's like a pucker game for both of these guys. I mean, Wisconsin, um, they get Notre Dame in three weeks mm-hmm. after Saturday. Um, I'm blanking on who they, they have someone else on the second, a ranked opponent, and I'm blanking. Um, I know Penn State's got Auburn. Um, they've got uh, Iowa and Ohio State on the road in October, early November. Um these are not easy schedules for either team to navigate. Yeah, so right, like, right after no, right after Notre Dame is Michigan, which you know obviously has been it's been an easy one for Wisconsin, quite frankly. But nonetheless, I mean, you're still talking about Penn State, Eastern Michigan, Notre Dame, Michigan, and then at Illinois in the first five weeks of the season. Both of these teams, by the way, qualify for that first five weeks tests that I had talked about earlier. And that's, again, maybe why it seems like it, there's a lot of these teams for me, because there are these prominent teams in Wisconsin and Iowa both qualify as like, man, by, by early October, these seasons could be either like looking great or totally off the rails. Yeah. As a quick aside, Michigan's not going five and seven. Let's just get that out of the way. Like, I know they're not going to beat Ohio State. This is not going to be some sort of pushover team. Okay. It's just, I, just, I just want to say that. Okay. Um, but for, for, for both these guys, like, it's more about, I think, looking at the schedule and realizing what a win would mean and what an opportunity a win would provide. Like for Penn State, it's like one huge test. I think they do beat Auburn at home in two weeks. I don't think Auburn's going to be that great. It's just a huge test. Like you look at the three road games that will define the season, you win at Wisconsin, and it's like an exhale. It's like saying, okay, like, all right, we're back to a degree and we have a tough road ahead. 
but we can breathe easy against Ball State. I think we'll beat Auburn. We got I'm looking here, Villanova, Indiana is not going to be as good as they were last year. And then it's at Iowa on the 9th of October. And then it's the next big test. And for Wisconsin, I mean, it's not much of a breath, but you get Eastern and you get a bye. And then Notre Dame, I think it's in, at the uh, Soldier Field. Right. So, you know, it's like an opportunity game, obviously opportunity to beat a high quality opponent, but it's also a chance to reset and like, and then begin to look forward and begin to really embrace the concept that we are as good as we think we're going to be, or at least that some people think we're going to be, and that we can make a run at this thing. And I think both teams are capable of that. Okay. So again, that's your number four. That's my number one, but we're going to go in the order of your list. Uh, and so number three, number one, yeah, that is not my number one. Again, I wow. love that tension. I, j- I think they're two very good teams and I think there is real tension because of, again, what happened last year. So I have that as number one. And, I, you know, listen, I also think, you know, conference game, uh, again, two good teams, two interesting styles. There's enough, like, intrigue about. Also, the, like, a lot of what goes into my thinking on this list is unknowns, right? How good is Mertz? Like, what will that Yersich offense look like with Clifford and things along those lines? You know, uh, um, Wisconsin uh, made the Clemson uh, transfer the number one running back as opposed to Jalen Berger. Uh, Shea Malusis, I think his name is. Um, Though I I think I might also be getting his, uh, mispronouncing his last name. But so there's just a lot of unknown there that I'm looking forward to seeing what these teams look like in, you know, 2021. Yeah, uh, you sold me. You're right. As we started talking about it, I realized that this game's a lot more important than the next two games on my list, for example. Well, that's okay. We're, we're, that, that, that's okay. We're going to have you st- stick with this same order. We've done uh, number five, Boise State and UCF. Number four, Wisconsin and Penn State. And number three on your list would be... LSU at UCLA. All right. And I can't believe that they're third and then that other game is fourth. But LSU and Pasadena at the Rose Bowl. UCLA uh, rejuvenated. I thought they looked really good on Saturday. I mean, Hawaii, nonetheless, they ran the ball really effectively. Um, very vanilla, but still consistent, coherent. Um, didn't give too much away. We just kind of steamrolled a, a solid middle-tier Mountain West team, as they should. And then, obviously, LSU uh, storylines abound from Orgeron is the under pressure to deliver. We make about five and five from last year, especially given the way they closed. What do you expect from an offense that's trying to turn back the clock, you know, all the way to 2019 with the Joe Brady clone? Um, a lot at stake. And obviously, uh, we spoke about the group of five battle between the Mountain West and, and the American with, with UCF Boise. Just imagine what UCLA beating LSU as kind of far-fetched as that sounds. Like, if they get lucky and they have plus three in turnovers and they get it done, what would that mean for the Pac-12? I mean, just an enormous opportunity for that team and for that conference. I don't think they win the game, but I do think there's a lot of intrigue involved with that matchup. Yeah, they are. that game is not on my list. I am certainly, that would certainly could have made it. Um, but again, for a lot of the reasons that you, you covered, it, uh, um, I, I just find myself being really cautious about jumping on the sort of UCLA bandwagon. And again, it goes back to a little bit about what we, you know, that, that running theme. How much of last year was real? How much of last year was real? And listen, I think UCLA was only three and four last year. So it's not like they had this amazing season, but they also did lose several very, very close games. I think they had three losses by just a, a handful of points, uh, including a, a, a double overtime loss to end the season to Stanford. 
So again, it's a lot of that. Oh, we have optimism about UCLA, but what, how how real was that? We saw LSU struggle last year. How real was that? Uh, how much of that was just a bad hire for their, <laughs> by you know bringing in Bo Pelini? Um, there's certainly a ton of talent there. Yeah, I, I'm very much interested in watching this game. It did not make my list, uh, and and as you said, it 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 would be a game changer for the Pac-12. Uh, it would reverberate for the Pac-12 for the entire season. Um, I don't know. I had at least one, uh, you know, uh, Pac-12 assistant coach texting me, telling me like, "Hey, man, like UCLA might be for real here. Like they got some serious guys on on their on their offensive lines and defensive lines. They actually they could be the second best team in that in that conference." The field goal game, LSU favorite. I mean, I, I think this has a chance to to be really close. But again, like truth be told. Because the idea you mentioned that we don't know, for example, what the defense is going to be about, let alone the offense, the concept on offense, what they want to be. I mean, can they even resemble that? I, I truly don't know. Um, has a chance to, to go either way. Um, and we've been waiting a long time for this to happen for UCLA. Not like in the grand scheme of things. I think we've been waiting since the 80s for UCLA. Um, <laughs> Terry Donahue. Except for that yeah. one year, the K. McCown year. But we've been waiting for a long time in, in our lifetime. But we've also been waiting in a college football lifetime for Chip Kelly to turn this thing around. Um, it has to happen now. And it doesn't mean you have to beat LSU, but you're, you're four years in or you're 3.5 years in if you only count a portion of last year. And, and it's time to make a move. Mm-hmm. And like you said, or like, like your, your source told you, I think UCLA from what I saw as an uneducated observer looked like a just a much more complete football team, which gives credence to the idea that the roster is more complete, which is what you heard all offseason. The roster was deeper, finally. His guys, finally, the kind of guys that he wanted on both sides of the ball, finally, and that UCLA was ready to go. So a great, great chance, a different sort of chance than Penn State, Wisconsin, because UCLA, even with the win, is not competing for the playoff, I don't think but an opportunity nonetheless for, for the Bruins and, and for Chip Kelly. Yeah, my last thought on that one is, hey, it's it's a, it's a team with two new coordinators in LSU uh, against a team that has, is it right, in year 3.5 of a regime uh, that thinks it, has, it, it should have its act together. In other words, like that UCLA is the team at home that has had some stability and consistency that seems to be building towards something where LSU is a team that is a little bit in transition, even though it has the same coach for several years. The other thing to clean up, just to make sure I get the name right, Shea Malusi is the Clemson running back. Shea Malusi is the Clemson running back. him with the... Mark Malusa. I was. I was literally Heavy confusing thing. him with a with a WFAN host who I know and I really like, by the way. Mark is a good dude. I've been on his show several times, but I was confusing his last name with uh, with with a, a radio show host at, at WFAN. So Shea Malusi is the starting tailback for the Badgers uh, against Penn State this weekend. So you, that was your number three game, UCLA at um, excuse me, LSU at UCLA. Also throw into account, I don't know how much it matters, but LSU has been spending the week in Houston because its uh, campus was hit by the hurricane, and hopefully everybody's okay in Louisiana. That just sounded awful. So, you know, the the, the standard thoughts and prayers, and we hope everybody's okay in Louisiana. It's one of my favorite places. Um, my number three actually is another team from Louisiana involved, and that is Louisiana Lafayette and Texas. Is they Are they on your list at all? Yeah, they're number two. 
Okay. Well, so perfect. So that's a perfect way because we were going to get to your number two. So let's just talk about this one together. Number two on your list, Louisiana and Texas. Sark's debut with uh, the Longhorns in Austin. Go. Louisiana as a football team, as a football program under Billy Napier. Um, to me, uh, again, not a smart person, but someone who just watches a lot of football, are defined by three things. They're defined by their physicality. They're defined by their, I'm actually going to change that to four things. They're defined by their <laughs> physicality, especially on the offensive front, by their ability to run the football on anyone and everyone, by the fact that they don't beat themselves with mistakes, and that they are very, very obviously well coached. Like they're well drilled. They stay cool and they're calm. And they, they, again, they don't make mistakes. Those four things are like the hallmark of a great football team and a hate and a great football program. And they are also simultaneously the kryptonite for Texas going back for a decade. <laughs> and like, like the four basic fundamental tenets that a succession of Texas coaches have preached they want to be about and that they have failed to be. Um, I love that dynamic. Um, I think Sark at Texas is like a lovely fit of a guy who loses confidence, who wants to do crazy things on offense, who has this really kind of uh, electric brain processes when it comes to like solving riddles on the offensive side, even in-game, which is spectacular at. Um, I think in the long term, I, I just like it. I, I like Sark there, and I think if he can recruit and beat A&M for the state's best prospect, I think they can have a lot of success. I just can't imagine a worse first game for him and for Texas than playing Louisiana, even given the talent disparity. They're a really good group of five team. They're ranked. Nonetheless, they are a group of five team so capable of doing to Texas what Maryland did in Herman's first game, which I attended. Maryland beat the doors off them. And I don't know if Louisiana can beat them by 25, but they can put together the sort of win that can hang over Texas for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if that's a great way for Sark to get started. No, I, I completely agree in the idea. It, it could it, it really is the worst way to start because if you had started with a ranked team that was a brand name, I think you would have gotten a little more... Uh, a little more leeway, right? You've gotten a little, uh, there would have been more room to work with there with Sark, where if you lost to number 23, oh, I don't know, uh, you just pick a, pick a random AC, good ACC team. If you lost to number 20, uh, I'm sorry? NC State. Yes, if you had lost the number 23 NC State, there would have been a little bit more of like, well, you know, we're, we're it's our first game. Uh, and I just don't know if that's going to go over as well with uh, Louisiana, with Louisiana Lafayette. I, I, I still think people will say, hey, this is a Sunbelt team. You need to beat a Sunbelt team. And I think to a certain degree, you're also paying for the sins of your of your uh the people who came before you, right? I mean, Sark, if they were to lose this game, it's just, it's a fan base that had feels like it has gone through all of this before, right? We've dealt with losing to BYU for, you know, 10 years ago. We've dealt with the, the losses to K State and to TCU. So like now we're have to deal with, it, it, it's a, it's a fan base that definitely needs to start feeling better about the direction of its program and to start the new regime by losing to a Sunbelt team, even a really good one is not going to feel great. It's just, it's going to feel sucky for, you know, Longhorns fans. Yeah. And, and it, it is going to, it's going to hang over them, you know, and I, it's just, 
you would feel for Texas, this is not, again, like just in terms of talent versus talent, coaching versus coaching, experience versus experience, it's just not a good matchup. Yeah. Whether it's the week one or week 11 in a non-conference game, it's just not a great matchup. Um, I don't think this is the Nick Saban replacement bowl, like necessarily, but nonetheless, like there is also that storyline of two guys who have, uh, for Napier, um, obviously taken a huge step forward in his career because of his time under Saban and, and the tricks that he learned there for Sark. The rehab that Saban did for him is probably his best work in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that storyline to it of two guys, you know, versed in the Alabama way. Um, there's just a lot. There's a lot to pick at. Yeah. Um, and I think the unfortunate thing for UT is <clears throat> if they win like 31-30, that's a really good win. That's a really, really good win. And it won't be seen that way because people will look past Louisiana and see a group of five. Here, here's my hot take on that game, and I've been throwing it out there for a while. I think Texas wins, and I think the spread is seven. I think Texas wins by two touchdowns. That would be fantastic. Yeah. That would be fantastic for them. It really would. I, 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 I hope that people would recognize that Louisiana is really good. Yeah, and I'm not all in on Texas. As like I, I've told people, like I wouldn't have had Texas in my preseason top 25. I just, I don't know. Maybe it's just a feeling. Maybe I'm totally off here, but I do think. That and and Hudson Card has a really high ceiling at quarterback. I wasn't p- particularly shocked that he ended up winning the job over Thompson, despite what we saw at Thompson in the bowl game last year. It seemed like it was it was sort of it was close, but trending that way. And the idea that Thompson is, is going to play in this game, which Sark has already said, you know, I don't know what that if that means that I should be like worried because if if he's going to play, does that mean that they really never separated all that much? I don't know. It's 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 a total gut feel here. I certainly wouldn't be at all surprised to see Louisiana win this game, but my gut feeling has been. I think we have made a little too much of Louisiana's chances. They are still a Sunbelt team facing a Big 12 team with sort of high caliber talent. And I think the talent will win out. And I, I, I don't think they'll beat them by 30, but I could see Texas winning this game somewhat comfortably in the fourth quarter. I could see this game being the type of game where we're really all excited to watch it because of we understand the ramifications, but by the third quarter, we're also like flipping away from it. Like we're not watching as much of it as we, it's the game that seems like the, the prime upset that everybody's going to go for. And like, Oh, this is, this is the place we're going to get the upset special. And then we come away going like, ah, I guess not. <laughs> oh yeah. It almost seems like it's too obvious. That's, that's college football. Yeah. Like the upset will be Montana beating Washington. Some like garbage thing Oof. like that, and no one sees coming. Um, but yeah, I, you know, yeah, I could see it. 14, 10, 14. 17. Yeah, in that area, in that in that in that ten fourteen area. So all right, so that's that was number three on my list. It was number two on your list. Number two on my list. I have a feeling this might be number one on your list. So which is good because we already talked about number one on my list. Number two on my list is Georgia Clemson. Uh, number one for me was Bethune Cookman at Utah. Ah, no. oh, it's a nine PM start at the Sun Bowl. Um, you ever been to the Sun Bowl before? By the way, I I have, but I haven't when there was a game going on. I drove. Oh, yeah. I drove through El Paso when I moved from. Is this right? Did I actually do this? I, I, I can't. I drove through El Paso. I feel like when I moved from Denver to Jackson. 
Let me let me Google that on the map to make sure I, I'm not mis- mistaken there, and you tell me what your actual number one game is. I've also been to the Sun Bowl on a on a non game day while I was going from El Paso to Rui Doso, New Mexico, to watch Utah hold fall practice. I know you don't like to say fall practice, preseason camp. Wow. Um, so I've also I haven't seen a game there either, but um, yeah, number one is Georgia Clemson, Ralph. I mean, it seems obvious to me. The only reason to not put it number one is that, as we all know, like it's not an elimination game. I think the team that wins it should be number one because they'll have achieved more at this point than anybody else. And the team that loses it will like go to number seven or something, you know. And obviously, being at number seven with the conference schedule ahead means absolutely nothing in the era of the fourteen playoff. Yeah, it might not but even be number seven. I like I could see a, a scenario where the losing team, even well, if it's Georgia. If it's George as the losing team, maybe even moves up. I could even see that scenario. Yeah, depending on the result. I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely could see Georgia in a loss, you know, 41-40 classic go up to number four. I mean, who knows? I mean, certainly yeah. would not fall very far. So, um, Georgia-Clemson is an outstanding series. They play really good games, at least recently. I remember being in Death Valley, I want to say it was 2013, 38 34, 38, 35, Clemson. One of those first wake-up games for the program under Dabo. Um, I think it's a really great game. And it's a telling game in terms of what these two specific teams are capable of. Like, obviously, it would validate um, preseason optimism for either one of these teams for the winner that they're going to win the national championship. But the loser is still very much in the thick of things. I think Clemson, in particular, they lose this game even as much as we disparage the ACC at times in comparison to the SEC and even the Big Ten, um, they're expected and they should go through the ACC, I wouldn't say easily, but like they usually do, because that's what they've done for five years or so. Um, so there's always a chance that these two teams will meet again. I, I just can't overlook the fact that, at least in our poll, it's 2v5, uh, neutral site, Saturday night, week one, it's just a classic, and, and I'm glad that we're seeing games like this, and we'll see them more and more. But um, you can't ask for a better way, other than Alabama Clemson, for the college football season in prime time to get started. Yeah, uh, I, I, I have almost nothing to add to that. It's going to be a super interesting game between two of the superpowers in in the sport, and why not you know get it to start the season? And to, and to sum up just how interesting the opening weekend is, we didn't talk about Notre Dame and Florida State, which I think has a ten, could be pretty interesting uh, as to sort of see where Florida State is in their rebuild with all these transfers. We did not talk about... Um, we did not talk about Indiana at Iowa, right? An Indiana team that I have a little, I've been sort of the downer on Indiana. That I don't think they're going to be quite as good as they were last year. And I think, you know, Iowa has a good chance to challenge in the West. That's a really, in, another really interesting Big Ten game that uh, I think could sort of set the tone for the season for two teams that we expect to be pretty good. We did not talk about Miami, Alabama, because I think we probably do, both think Alabama is going to win pretty easily. But if they do anything, but, but if that doesn't happen, that's that's super interesting too, right? If, if Miami ha- just hangs with Alabama, I think it could give a different sort of feel for what Miami is going into this season and whether you know what where where they are in, in comparison to North Carolina, in comparison to maybe even Clemson down the road. So listen, Miami's always interesting. I think the problem is Alabama has a tendency to be uninteresting, which and by by that I mean super good. 
blowout teams and, and by halftime the, the game could be over. I think we're all sort of bracing for that, which is why I think Miami and Alabama doesn't make the list. But there's a lot of interesting games this weekend. We only touched on a handful. And I'm just glad to have it back, Paul. I'm really glad to have it back. Last year was a chore. This offseason was you know, kind of a grind, quite frankly, with all the different news going on. And it's just sort of nice to have the games back because the one as dysfunctional as this sport can be on so many levels, the games always deliver. The the, the, the product always delivers. Yeah, I, I speak for myself, and I would imagine a good portion of people listening, college football has not been fun for a while. It hasn't been, just being flat out. It hasn't been what it's supposed to be. And the reason that we do this job, which isn't even really a job, it's a joke um, <laughs> because it's fun. So I'm looking for, for fun to come back to college football. And I think that we'll fight. I just really feel like as stupid as it sounds, um, I'm not going anywhere this weekend. Being on my couch and looking at full stadiums, hopefully in a, in a safe environment with fully vaccinated people um, will make me feel like the fun is back in college football. I want to hear the band, you know, I want to see people tailgating. I want to hear the roar of the crowd before the first kick. I want to hear Miami fans going crazy because they force a three and out on the first three of the game. <laughs> right. That's what I, you know, that's what I want. That's why, uh, that's why we do this on Saturdays. If we didn't get that, I mean, we'd be working in an office somewhere making a couple more bucks. I yeah, it would, it would truly be a, a job if that, if it wasn't for Saturdays, it would truly be a job. And this week, it's not just Saturday, it's Thursday, it's Friday, it's Sunday for a little bit, it's even Monday night, uh, Ole Miss and Louisville, which is a pretty interesting one as well. Paul, as always, a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Paul Meyerberg from USA Today, National College Football Writer, does a great job. He is my friend. He's also a New Yorker and uh, to a certain degree almost a neighbor. So we don't see each other quite enough in person, but it's it's always good to talk to you. And, and it's really great to talk to you before the start of the season. Ralph, enjoy the year. We will talk again. But And all your listeners, enjoy the season. Have a blast. Hope your team does great. And now, three and out, and we'll do this in a little bit of a hurry-up style since we went a little long with Kirk and Paul. First down, we'll keep the weekend preview vibe going. Super interested to see Ohio State's new quarterback, C.J. Stroud, on Thursday at Minnesota. Minnesota, I think, has a pretty good chance to have a bounce-back year and be in the mix in the Big Ten West. My quick take on Ohio State. There is a clear path here to the Buckeyes having a national championship team. Not a necessarily breaking news there, but I think it runs through the freshman class. If Jack Sawyer and JT Tuamoola, I think I got that right. Sorry, JT, if I missed it, but he's going to be a big star. So we'll all get to learn that name in the upcoming years. If those two freshman defensive ends give the Buckeyes elite pass rushers to go along with Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith, Ohio State might have the best defensive line in the country. Add in freshman Trayvon Henderson. If he emerges as a co-equal number one running back with Master Teague, maybe even edges out Teague and becomes one to Teague's 1A, my pick of Ohio State falling short of a Big Ten title this year will likely go completely out the window. Second down, an interesting game that will go almost completely unnoticed this weekend unless you happen to be fans of West Virginia and Maryland. 
year three of Neil Brown's regime with the Mountain Years and year two under Mike Loxley for the Terps. Neither team is expected to contend in their tough conference. Both have tricky schedules. The winner gets a boost toward a bowl game. I like this game because it kind of has a feel of an old school rivalry. West Virginia and Maryland, they should play more often. Third down. Finally, Texas Tech versus Houston at the home of the Houston Texans. I think Houston has a chance to be the second or third best team in the ACC and maybe even challenge Cincinnati this year in that conference. Meanwhile, Tech is entering a season where Coach Matt Wells really needs to get to a bowl game. Starting out the season with a loss to an old Southwest Conference rival would not be a good deal for Coach Wells. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. If you have questions that you'd like me or my guests to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. We would like to make that a more regular go-to throughout the season. So if you want us to pick a game or talk about how your team is doing, how your team might do, how your coach is hanging in there, or whether there might be a change, Drop us a line, drop us an email, and we'll try to get to those questions. We'd love to hear from you on all topics, college football, serious or silly. That's aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Podcast.